Okay, folks, welcome back to All Things HEMA with your host, Aaron Pennerberg. So I added that little cool intro drum line, and it's a, it's a drum line of um, kind of a martial nature. And I can't really think of another instrument that's as martial as a drum, so I thought that was perfect for the beginning of this particular podcast, All Things HEMA. So uh, today, episode 12, I have with me in the studio Bill Krieg. We're going to introduce him in just a second, but first, on to the sponsors... Of course, Albion Swords, history in your hand. Like I talk about in every episode, Albion Swords are amazing. If you're looking for a sharp reproduction, historically accurate, long sword, uh, arming sword, um, Zweihander, they're your source. Albion Swords, located in New Glarus, Wisconsin, the best producer of historically accurate weapons in the entire world. Uh, and then Advocare, care of Gary Lewis. Like I said, Gary Lewis has been a friend of mine for many, many years. He's been an athlete as long as I've known him, always interested in all things supplements. And Gary um, really highly recommends the Spark and O2 Gold for our activities. If you want to reach him, you can reach him at his email at glewis, that's G-L-E-W-I-S 9221 at gmail.com. Next, Umbrella Forge. Uh, this is Jeremiah Bachhaus's The Forged in Fire Champions b- business. And if you're looking for something hand-forged by a master craftsman, he is your first choice. You can reach him at umbrellaforge at gmail.com. And a brand new sponsor, which I'm super excited about. This is Larry Brumman's Brummond Setter Honey. This is for locals only, so if you're from uh, out of Wisconsin, you're out of luck, sorry. It's a, it's a secret society which uh, distributes honey to only select individuals. No, I'm just kidding. That's not quite the case. But uh, Larry's a small outfit, small operation, but his honey is incredible. I've talked about it before, and I want to thank Larry Brumman for also being a sponsor of this particular podcast. All right, so Bill Krieg, welcome. Wow, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. So, Bill, first off, so you've got a bunch of people listening to this podcast that study German. Yeah. What is up with your awesome last name? <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, so Krieg translates to what? To war. How long have you known that? Uh, pretty early on. Yeah, it was something my, my grandfather told me about, um, you know, family tradition kind of thing, you know, and I, I have no idea how far back our family goes here in Wisconsin versus Germany. I haven't gone and done the historical background. But I plan on doing so at some point. It would be really interesting to learn your family's uh, lineage and history. Yeah. Bill is a big guy. Um, how tall are you? 6'2". Six 6'2", two. Six two, and you know, you're like 200 and... 285. 285. Yeah. But I'm telling you, Bill, is his proportions are like a very masculine 285, right? Oh. So like, he's an imposing dude. He's a strong man. I've seen him do a lot of feats of strength and such. And we'll talk about your specific martial background in just a second, but you know, you look at my last name, like Pennenberg, it's it translates essentially like people near the small hill. You know. So I, I'm not quite to not Bill's quite as good as war. That's right. I'm not quite to Bill's uh, you know, coolness in terms of the last name action, but you know, it's one thing that uh, I think European people in general don't uh, spend a ton of time really thinking about. I think people from Wisconsin specifically are a little different in my view because of our more direct like lineage and connections to Germany and uh, Holland and you know that kind of stuff we have a lot of Norwegian background as well yeah. but we have a lot of close connections I think to to the direct you know coming over on the boat type yeah. of thing 
like my uh, my grandparents um, when they were kids came over and stuff. Um, well, so. and I, I've heard that I've got some Kepler in me, and I'm not sure how far back that goes, but like the Kepler astronomer, yeah, you know, from you know Germany, and and because I'm a Swedish background on me too. So right, did that's I say my grandparents? I meant my great grandparents. Yeah, came but over. it's all it's all fascinating stuff. It is. It's incredible. Um, so yeah, Bill's last name is War. Kind of, kind of aptly. So, so now let's connect that to your background. So, Bill is kind of a I consider anyway is a local legend around here as far as martial arts goes, especially in terms of like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Can you tell us what your credentials are? Sure. Well, I started training martial arts in 1994, uh, and I did that when I was in Milwaukee, uh, getting ready to go from high school into college. Tried some traditional martial arts. I did some uh, Tong Sudo. I did a little bit of Kung Fu. Uh, tried some Taekwondo. But nothing really fit my body type, as you mentioned, you know, a little bit of a bigger person. And the idea of trying to kick above my head just didn't work out for me. And then as the UFC brought Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu into more of the forefront, uh, I saw a martial art where my size could be an advantage. If I knew how to move, I knew how to use leverage, and I could use the ground to my, my benefit, that seemed to fit for me. And so I made the transition into Jiu-Jitsu in 1997 and trained pretty exclusively in jiu-jitsu since then. Now that was kind of before, now correct me if I'm wrong, but that was kind of a little bit before jiu-jitsu was like super well-known and super cool? Yeah, well, at the time, um, when I first got into it in 97, it was like Black Belt Magazine would have like an article about, here's how you do an arm bar, or here's how you do a choke. And we had nobody above us locally here to kind of show us the way. So it was literally me and a few guys pulling up the magazines, trying to go from still shot to still shot to figure out how these moved to work. And um, you know, our ranking system goes from white, blue, purple, brown, black. Well, back then, there was a blue belt in Chicago, there was a blue belt in Madison, and uh, there was one that was getting close to blue belt or at blue belt in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, and that was it. Like We didn't have a lot of resources to draw from, so we had to be self-taught in a lot of ways. And um, you know, those of us that have been back since, since that long, you know, we, we've come a long way since then. Now the state has lots of black belts, lots of resources. Uh, but we remember the, the scarcity of knowledge back in the day. It's interesting. You're talking about taking like an image, trying to recreate that image in a martially effective way and then like reproduce those results and stuff. It's the exact yeah. same thing we're doing in HEMA. It's just our images are 600 years old. <laughs> <laughs> with a weapon that's, you know, not really applicable I, anymore. Well, and, and the challenges are the same. because, And I've seen you go through your books, and I certainly understand that the challenge you guys have, and I respect the hell out of it. Um, you know, but trying to sit there and say, okay, I see the picture. I see where the body's positioned in space. Yeah. But where's the leverage point? Yeah. Where, where are they putting the pressure? Where are they backing off? Are they leaning forward, leaning away? Are they getting ready to step this way? Those subtleties you can't ask about are difficult. And the only way you find those is you recreate those trial and error, time after time, time after time, which you've experienced just as much as I have. Yeah. And it's tough to do. It takes a lot of dedication. Yeah, it does, right? It can be very frustrating from yeah. time to time too. Because like you said, going from that one image to the next image, it's like, okay, you see the body position, but like you said, what what is the leverage? What's like the information behind the information? There's always that that subtlety of applying the technique, you know, yeah. like we like to talk about in in our police stuff, you know, there's always like the classroom model and then the dynamic application of the classroom model. And that, that dynamic application is the experience points that we're always looking for. Right? Well, and I'm sure you've had this too, where you think you know something. Like you, yeah. you, if you figured it out, like, oh yeah, this is it. You show all your students, you're like, I've got it. This is awesome. Yeah. And then you revisit a year later saying, what was I thinking? Yeah. Oh my God. 
and then you go back and you almost have to kind of apologize to guys and say, nah, we're going to tweak it. <laughs> right. We're do a little bit of this or this. I've come to a different relationship with that because I have felt that way many times. I've almost felt guilty, like I'm wasting people's times. Because actually, the whole HEMA community does this constantly, and this is really all we talk about nonstop. Is like we're revisiting these interpretations of these techniques because it's not only interpretation based, but it's also translation based. Sure. So we're taking these, you know, medieval manuscripts, trying to translate them into English that makes some kind of sense to us. And then apply that then to our understanding of it. Not everything translates as well as my last name. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If only it was that clear, you know. Right. But um, so back to your experience. So, okay. So we're back in 1997 and you're trying to learn jiu-jitsu uh, from these disparate sources. And you mentioned like a belt ranking system. Yeah. Was it a specific school you were trying to hook up with or were there more schools? No. Or? Um, when, I was, when I was getting into jiu-jitsu, my karate instructor at the time, because again, I was trying these different kind of traditional martial arts, uh, heard about a seminar in Chicago run by a Hicks and Gracie black belt named Rodrigo Vaghi. So part of the Hicks and Gracie Association, Hickson's part of that whole, you know, Grace, uh, Gracie clan, so to speak. Rodrigo uh, came to Chicago, did a seminar. Uh, he attended, I attended, a number of us attended, and we instantly made the switch. We're like, okay, we're dropping what we're doing, we're starting over. So we basically had a black belt in a traditional martial art decide I'm going to give him a white belt in jiu-jitsu and try to run a school as a white belt, which is unheard of now, but that's really what we had to do back in the day. So it was white belts teaching white belts at the time. And every time he would do a seminar, we would follow. We were like a little pilgrimage kind of thing. And there was other black belts that were coming around doing seminars, but we just kind of had this connection with him. So he went to Minneapolis and did a seminar that we hosted one in Milwaukee, brought him in, but we always stuck with, with, uh, Rodrigo. Eventually, Carlson Gracie went to Chicago. A few other guys went to Chicago. They were black belts. But we just had a comfort and um, uh, a relationship with Rodrigo, so we just stuck with him. Okay. Yeah. And that, so that, so now, just so I'm understanding, so that he was like a student of the Gracies. Yeah. Well, right? yeah, if you go back in the lineage, like everyone hears the name Elio Gracie. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like one of the, the main guys. So Rodrigo's dad was really good friends with Elio. Okay. So Rodrigo grew up in the Gracie family, even though he's not blood relation of the Gracies. Right. He grew up with them. Right. And Elio would refer to Rodrigo basically as my son, you know, often in conversation. Right. Because they, they were in so tight. Rodrigo um, taught at the original Gracie Academy in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, before moving up to the United States and settling in St. Louis, Missouri. So he had the experience of teaching at the main academy under Elio's guidance. Uh, under Hickson's guidance before coming to the States. Cool. Yeah. All right. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So now as you sit here now, you are like what rank or? I'm a first degree black belt. First yep. degree black belt. Mm -hmm. Are there any other first degree black belts like there's, in this there, area? Yeah, there, there's other black belts. Um, James Peterson, um, a friend of mine here from Appleton, he's a black belt. There's a number of black belts in Green Bay. Um, but again, this is kind of a newer concept for us because we haven't had a lot of black belts at the time right and they're still pretty scarce when you look at other martial arts you go to any taekwondo school or any kind of karate school in the area you walk in you got a room full of black belts right well here you're lucky if you walk into a room full of like middle rank belts it's just it's not as prevalent especially at the higher rankings right it's interesting how like you said you had a, a white belt teaching a bunch of white belts and yeah. stuff and, I, and when i think about your like reputation this is kind of what I think of in terms of Bill Krieg, like just the organizer, right? Just always organizing things, getting things going, keeping them together. 
Can you speak to that a little bit? Because like when I first heard about you, because like, you know, doing martial arts, you hear about other people, sure. you know what I mean? You don't really know what they're doing or what's going on, but you know they're like involved in it and stuff. Yeah. Well, I, and I'll be happy to tell you about what I first heard of you too. So <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> Can't wait. But, um, you know, you hear about other people and, yeah. you, and you just kind of like file it in, in your card of people that may maybe someday you want to like yeah. talk to or hook up with or find out what they're up to or whatever. And... I remember hearing about you, but the first thing I think I heard about you was that like you were jujitsu expert. You were like also running uh, cage fights and stuff, <laughs> okay. and you know that you were kind of like the organizer guy around here for mm-hmm. for cage fights and you know for MMA kind of style organizations and, and fighting and stuff. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool that he's that he's starting that. So, well, and yeah, organizer or facilitator, I guess, might be a good word for it too. Um, I'm a fairly humble guy. Like, uh, you know, I've had a number of different martial arts schools over the time, but I've never had my name on the forefront. You never hear of Bill Creek Jiu-Jitsu, and you never will. It's just, it's not my nature. Hmm. Um, and so I like to put the team first. I always like to put other people first. And so that's where I like to facilitate or organize a kind of a group together. But my mentality since the beginning, and when I first started teaching, I was a one-stripe white belt because I moved from Milwaukee to Appleton, started teaching a group in my basement, and it just kind of expanded from there. <clears throat> but the whole time I was teaching was, we're going to learn together. I'll show you what I know, but if you know something as well, I hope you will show me, and it's a collaborative effort. Now, over the years, my experience has grown, and people have come and gone or whatever, so I tend to be the most experienced person in the room, but I never lost the mentality of even a white belt coming in may show me something, yeah. even if it's accidental. I may have a light bulb moment off something I see. They didn't intend to teach me something, but I just learned that day from them. And it's never lost. I'm always a student. I always want to learn. But uh, I do like the idea of putting things together, organizational standpoint, and giving people opportunities that they may not have otherwise. So, I share that mentality with you, I think. And I think it, you know, I think Bill and I really have a very similar mindset as far as like what we're trying to get out of this activity and this lifelong quest. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, initially when you got into HEMA, because again, this is now stuff I'm hearing about you. Right. Was uh, I heard of this Aaron guy who was swinging swords around a fitness center? Yeah. And people had to keep a distance because they didn't know if the guy was really sane or if he was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I, I say that jokingly, of course. Yeah. But but no. your goal was to develop training partners yes. that could push you to the next level. That's right. And that's where I was too. Where it's like I had to try to 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 foster my own group of people that can in turn give me something to push against. Because it's easy to take somebody who's completely unskilled in jujitsu or yeah. completely unskilled in HEMA, say let's spar, and you just whoop on them. And right. you walk out, you feel great, you're all strutting your stuff, and that's not what I want. I want somebody who's actually going to push me and challenge me to make me better. So the only way to do that is to give them every opportunity to beat me, so that I in turn have to take my next step in growth too. This, so I think you and I share that exact absolutely, philosophy. absolutely. And this, this whole subject matter right now could be like its own series of podcasts. Because every club, and actually most of the emails, the questions that I get from people are like, hey, Aaron, like, I'm really interested in HEMA. I want to start my own club. I don't know where to start. Like, what, what's the right beginning moves and stuff? And like you mentioned, you know, the answer that I uniformly give is like, all right, first, you've got to self-study. You've got to kind of get some idea of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to find people of like mind that you can then develop them so that they can help push you. Yeah. And, and you have to you have to be willing to sacrifice your own growth oh, yeah, because if I look at it now, like you know, being in my mid forties, 
if I could come into the game now with the way, you know, we're in Appleton right now, but if I could walk into a school in Appleton as a brand new white belt at 18 years old, yeah, my path would be vastly different than it is now. Yeah, I could have moved to a bigger city. I could have moved to St. Louis. I could have moved to wherever else and gotten my black belt faster, developed myself faster. I chose not to because I wanted to foster it here in the Valley. So I gave up my opportunities to be a high, high level practitioner yeah. to give other people the opportunity to have that. That's so true. I discovered HEMA late in life, kind of. Like, I've always been <clears throat> messing around with wrestling and, and stuff. Yeah, you've uh, always been athletic. Yeah, and, and you know, the Asian martial arts never really spoke to me much. Um, I think sim similarly, like, your build, I'm a little thicker, too, and I'm not going to be doing splits and stuff. You know, I just didn't... It just wasn't something that interested me. Yeah. I mean, I recognized its athleticism. I recognized its dedication and all that kind of stuff. But I was more to, like, weightlifting and wrestling and just kind of being a general scrapper. It wasn't until I was able to understand and marry up my idea and um, obsession for history with this athletic activity on top of it. Sure. Plus, I felt like Indiana Jones in a way that I was like sifting through this archaeological sure. record of martialness. You know, oh, and by the way, not only is it martialness, but it's also like my ancestors. Yeah. So that that whole thing really spoke to me in a way in which I hadn't anticipated. Well, and, and you're talking about you know with builds. You know, for me. Jiu-Jitsu spoke to me because like I could take my size, tackle a guy to the ground, use my weight to my advantage. For you, I you know I understood that you were a big weightlifter and uh, athletic, and you know, still are. To take a broadsword and hold it above your head for a series of you know yeah. of swings, whatever else, or a prolonged period of time, takes out a fair amount of strength. Yeah, not everybody is willing to dedicate the time it takes to build the strength, to build the endurance, to build the knowledge base that you have, and that's a testament to you. Yeah, kind of coming forward as well. Well, it's called a longsword, Bill. Okay. <laughs> Broadsword, longsword. I didn't call it a katana. Give true, me credit for not true, calling it a katana. True. I thank you for not doing that. Well, the katana is the most ultimate weapon in the universe, and it can cut through tanks in the world. I didn't, I didn't call it a lightsaber either. Come on. <laughs> so um, it's interesting how, I guess maybe we'll, we'll switch gears for a minute now, and we'll just, can you believe how much it's snowing right now? Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, Wisconsin is something 50 else. Something it was 50 degrees yesterday, and now it's like a blizzard. So Stupid. Whatever. But um, one of the things you touched on that I want to kind of revisit was um, this idea of the different like lives, life cycles of your experience of forming a club and then developing others, uh, sacrificing your own development sure. in a way, right, to develop those others. <clears throat> and then I don't know if you've experienced this, but I'm just laying this out there for you to maybe comment on. But what I've noticed is, so you, you start that, that process, right? So what I'm looking at is like a scale, like I'm above the people that I bring in that I think have the right mentality and discipline and stuff. And then you bring them higher than yourself. And then once you do that, you try and reach back up to them. And then it's this constant almost arms race, even though you're always kind of ahead of them in a way, mentally especially, you're always preparing for the next step in their development so that yep. you can develop yourself. Have you ever found problems, um, discord, like issues that have developed? Because I certainly have because it's it's very it's very uh, connected to like that discipline piece that self realization the ego kind of thing fits into it as well. Yeah. Like it seems like you develop people, you put a bunch of energy into them, sacrifice yourself. Most of them see that, and most of them recognize that and appreciate that. Sure. So I don't want to talk crap about the process because it is rewarding in that way, but also it can be a problem when you encounter it at first when people don't appreciate that true or when they take advantage of it and it's kind of like mind-blowing 
it was to me at least that oh my gosh like don't they realize how much work i'm putting into this don't sure. they realize how much sacrifice this is taking i mean has that happened oh 100% I, I, yeah 100% and you know to to give a quick summary of things like so when i moved to the valley it was in 99 or 2000 kind of in that range i think it was late 99 i wanted to start up a jiu jitsu group here in the valley and had no money uh, to really get a full-time gym going and didn't have the knowledge. That's a one-stripe white belt. I'm not going to go and lease out a big 4,000-square-foot space, buy mats, whatever else is a one-stripe white belt. Um, I just didn't have the resources or the knowledge. So I started in my basement. We put some carpeting, put a tarp over top of it, went from there, started subleasing from different existing schools, continued to build up. But all those years of... Um, growth that we had experienced like from um, the physical location standpoint the new students now don't have that historical perspective right so in my mind i'm looking at this like i've dedicated 20 25 years to what i'm doing as we're as we're going through this the new person walking in doesn't know that they yeah. just see what's in front of them right now so you know yes it, it angers me sometimes when people take things for granted uh, but they're also paying for a service and then they want to have a, a quality service. So I, I kind of get that too. Right. You know, well, that's another flip of the switch, right? From becoming like a study group where there's a bunch of you that are studying together to develop each other. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's forming a business sure. where you're providing that service that they are then paying for. And it's a necessary evil. I yeah. mean, if I, if I had it, you know, where I could do, you know, the Thanos snap my fingers, make things the way I want it to be. Right. It would be that I could just have a facility that would be free of charge, come on in and train. Because that's really the mentality I have is I want to train with my friends. Yeah. You know, hey, you like jujitsu, I like jujitsu, or with you with Hema, I'm sure it's the same way. It's like if you guys want to come train, let's just all practice together. Right. But the reality doesn't work that way. Somebody has to ultimately be the caretaker for the group. Somebody has to have the financial responsibility to keep the group afloat. Yeah. Um, the liability standpoint, the safety standpoint, and whatever else. And that weighs on you over time. It does. It does. And, and, but again, not everybody sees that, not everybody experiences it. Some guys like to walk in, drop their gear bag, train for a couple hours, pick up the gear bag, walk out, and they want to repeat, repeat, and repeat that. Right. Well, you and I, when we go home, what are we doing? We're doing social media stuff. We're doing research for other things. We're trying to lesson plan for the next class, all this other stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Yeah. That they don't ever see, they don't appreciate. Right. Well, and it's it's another facet of martial arts, I think, in general, in that you know you're you're almost and I hate to say this this word because it, it's going to sound evil in a way, and there's no evilness behind it. It's just a necessary fact and a necessary part of leading a martial arts group, and that's almost like you're a puppet master in a way, in a way, because yeah. you're you're trying to make sure that egos don't clash, that uh, personalities are jiving that um, little little things that pop up from time to time that are dealt with in a, in a responsible sure. way. But I find that the responsibility is not just the, to the people as persons, but also to the art, right? Because oh, yeah. it's yeah. like, and, and currently actually, I'm dealing with a situation in my club where there's this, and I'm constantly talking about the idea of control, right? When, you, when you're using a weapon to like hit somebody, you're talking about velocity and mass, you know, and and this kind of stuff and you have to be concerned with this idea of I have to be able to be in control of this weapon to the point where I'm not going to cause injury right but at the same time <clears throat> there can be this backsliding where it's almost too soft yeah there's this sweet spot where it's like all right if we're gonna be traveling around to other groups and doing tournaments and things other groups don't have a lot of emphasis always on this control piece 
So my people sometimes will go into these things with great technique and great uh, understanding of tactics and mental discipline and all this kind of stuff, but they're not hitting as hard sure. as some of these other groups. And so what I have to think about is, okay, for the, for the health of them, like for their literal physical safety, and for them to be able to express their tactics and techniques in a way that shows their their discipline and their commitment to their art, they have to put the pedal down a little bit from time to time, yeah. right? And and you mentioned that sweet spot, which is which is very true, and I think all martial arts have it. And jujitsu is struggling right now with getting kind of watered down. You know, it was back in the day where if you mm. wanted to get a black belt, it was years and years and years and years of study. It was super hard work, lots of lots of conditioning. It was just it was a crazy level to get, uh, even to brown, you know, much less even into black belts. And now belts are coming so much faster, and the technique has been watered down. But part of it is because that's how you get the new students in. And yeah. for some people, you can push because they're going to be tournament based, and some people are never going to compete in tournaments, and you want to back off a little bit for them so you can retain the students. Yeah. So how do you retain the people that are the hobbyists versus how do you retain the people that want to be the high level? You know, overachiever kind of people, yeah, and keep them in the same physical space at the same time. It's yeah. difficult to do. It's hard to balance. I have this uh, this philosophy and this methodology that I've talked about quite a bit, but it's called the three tracks, and it's the three tracks of HEMA study. But it essentially applies to every martial art, I think. And it's basically like you've got the enthusiasts, you got the traditionalists, and you got the sport. And the the enthusiasts are people like, you know, swords are cool. In this case, it'd be like, jujitsu is cool, right? Like, I, I want to learn about it, yep. but I don't want to get my ass kicked. I don't want to do any tournaments, and I don't care about rank system. Right. They're more interested usually, like, in the social elements, of uh, belonging to a club, going out with the guys, you know, or gal, gals yeah. in the evening. Or, or for us, it's like when they watch UFC, to yeah. have a working knowledge of it. Oh, I've seen that choke before. I understand how that armbar works. Right. Even though they're never going to fight, they want to be knowledgeable uh, when they watch their their UFC. Yeah, so they kind of like have an inside track yeah. into what they're seeing or yeah. have some relationship to it. Yes, yeah, talk talk intelligently about it. Yeah, and then you've got the traditionalists who are like, look, I'm here to earn rank. I want to be like, you know, the ultimate Dan of the, of the whole jiu-jitsu world at some point. You know what I mean? You've got those people that are really motivated by sure. rank structures and things. And then you've got those people that I just want to win every tournament I ever get into. Right. So you're right, servicing those three mentalities in one space, one physical space, right. can sometimes be very difficult. Yep. Have you come up with an answer? No. Uh, I mean, we've tried splitting classes before, but then you get some people that kind of straddle the middle ground a little bit, and um, you know, you don't want to divide up your classes too much because I think every group helps balance out the other in a way. Yeah. Um, so you have to be selective when it comes to sparring. You have to be selective when it comes to um, when they're executing the techniques with each other. Maybe... You know, this person goes to this person, this person doesn't go to that person. You have to be subtle in how you how you do that, but that's that's how it has to happen. But no, there isn't a really good answer for it. And people change over time. Some people come in, yeah. you know, being not caring so much about competition. After a little while, they want to become very competition-driven. Some people go to tournaments, don't have a lot of success, then kind of drift into the hobbyists. And, you know, you want to be able to facilitate everybody's need at the time. Yeah. But the needs change, too. Right. That's that's a very good point that those needs change. Yeah. You can have somebody even in their journey like just change from moment to moment depending on their motivation. Yeah. What I've what I've done that I found is of some success was, you know, you have your specific classes that are like almost generalized classes that give technique and give methodology approaches and things like that and then you allow space on either end of the lesson 
for like open mat time for people yep. to come in with an instructor and or hook up with somebody and go over X, Y, or Z thing, you know, without a formal structure. Mm-hmm. And then after that lesson too, there's time for like free sparring and playing around and stuff. That's yep. like a general class. Yep. Then we have a class where it's like Friday fight night and this is oriented more towards like the tournament mindset people. So they might explore like a different rule set for a tournament we might be going to, or, you know, there's a weakness that's identified in someone's game. So they might Mm -hmm. work on that, you know? So in other words, like having the generalized class that all three of those mentalities can go into and do you find people avoid the generalized classes? though? like if they, no, they're sort of, and I thought that might be the case, you know, because well, and in the past I had like typed up this big curriculum Mm -hmm. to people and I released that and I was like, okay, you know, like, this week we're going to be working on Zverk. You know, next week we're going to work on you know winding and so on and so forth. So people kind of knew. By the way, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> it's like arm bars, right? It's like okay, now this is the guillotine choke. This is the you know what I mean? These specific moves, yeah. you know, associated with whatever is going on. And what I found was like that burned people out. I lost so many students when I would release curriculum. I have no idea why. I did try to do like some exit interviews with people, but it was almost like they'd, they'd avoid me, right? And I'd be like, look, man, what's well, going on? I think some of that, because I've tried some of that kind of stuff too, like when people leave, like, hey, why? Yeah. And I think a lot of it's because they respect you so much, they don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. They'd rather just kind of disappear right. than try to hurt you personally and say, well, I didn't like this or so this. Right. You know, and it's it's tough getting honest feedback from people, even when they're current members. Yes. Hey, what's working, what's not? Because they they have this well, I don't want to piss them off or I don't want to do this or this. Yeah. So to get get that genuine response is hard. I, You know how I am, right? I'm a little more like in, in your face with questions and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I don't let a lot of that stuff go because I feel like if I need to improve or something, then I'm going to have to extract that from you because I recognize that is a is uncomfortable for people. But And I think my mom taught me this. You know, she's just like, what's going on? Tell me. Sure. She wouldn't let it go, you know, kind of thing. And um, I found when I do that to people, a lot of times, you know, they're uncomfortable with it to some extent, but what I get from them is more like, well, I just felt like um, this wasn't going anywhere, or I felt like it was somehow like killing the mystery or, or killing the passion in a way, because then now they could just research on their own what the thing was. But that's ultimately our goal, isn't it? To get them to be as motivated as we are, to learn on their own. And to, yeah. It, it's it's it, odd. It is an odd dynamic. But I think that that at the core, like, so you're interested in martial arts to whatever extent. Let's say I'm interested in jiu-jitsu because I've watched the UFC. And then I'm like, oh, this Bill Creed guy's got a class. So I go to his class. And you're teaching me all those subtle things that are involved without the pictures. But then you release a bunch of curriculum, and I can see what the curriculum is, and I almost say to myself, like, well, I know all this shit. Yeah, we, we do see people kind of study for the test. Yeah. Like, well, okay, so I for my next belt, I need to learn all these moves. And they'll go to the YouTube, they'll go to some other yeah. sources, and they'll try to look at the videos. Right. And then they have a surface-level understanding of the move. Yeah. But then you try to put it in a more of a complex dynamic of chaining moves together, when's appropriate to do this or this. Yes, you know how to maybe do this choke, but is this an appropriate time to do the choke? Right. And then do you know how to set up the choke? How do you get the guy's elbows up so you give room to slip in here, this? You know? And they, they lose the the deeper meaning behind things if you just have the list in front of you. Yeah. Um, so while people want to see a, a task list, oftentimes that I found they want to see this task list, Yeah. it doesn't go as fast as they think it should. Right. 
that so there's a little disappointment with it. Yeah, maybe that's it too. Or they're looking at the journey and they're like, oh, the journey's so long, like, why even try? Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why this may be the case, but the one thing I keep coming back to, it, it is the case. Whenever I post something like that, whenever I develop anything like that, I ultimately lose like 10 students well, right and, off the bat. And, and tell, me, tell me if I'm right on this, right? When you watch other people teach, hmm. even if it's something that you know, are you intrigued? Like, do they get your attention? Are you watching the subtleties and the yeah. detail? I mean, I'm a yeah. I'm the same way with jujitsu. I've seen lots and lots of ways to do an armbar, lots and lots of ways to do these different movements. I've watched other people teach moves that I've been showing for years, but I get entranced by that. Watching is there a nuance that's different? Yeah. Am I seeing something different? Really, kind of getting into the super deep, hyper detailed elements of it. Yeah. We're different that way. There's a very few of us around that yeah. want to break it down to that level. And so if we say, or like if I say in class, hey, we're working on Kimura today, I'll get a couple eye rolls. Oh, we just did Kimura four months ago. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was four months ago. That's right. And you haven't trained since then. And even if we did it four months ago, I've been doing this for how many years? And I still love trying to break this down and make improvements. Yeah. But you and I are different. Not yeah. a large amount of people want to do that kind of stuff. That's true. Yeah, and I think that's why we have stuck with it so long. Yeah, You're right about that whole thing about seeing somebody else teach. Um, recently, I started this winter seminar series for our club where we're trying to bring in instructors from outside and, and just have them teach my people. Mm -hmm. And um, as they do so, the instructors that are coming in are always like, well, are you going to participate in class? Or are you going to be there? Right? And there's like some hesitation. There's some like, like some uncomfortable feelings. And I always say to them like, I plan on just like auditing your class, just like, and that's a bad word, but, but I've used it a few times because what, I, what I'm trying to establish, at least in the Midwest here locally, is this idea that as instructors, we can learn a lot and benefit from each other as sure. we watch each other instruct. And it's not meant to be like, oh, I know so much, so I'm going to pick apart what you're saying. What it's meant is like, you're going to teach me. And in the process, I'm going to give you feedback that is so hard for people like us to get. Right. You know, so it, therefore it's super valuable. Mm -hmm. Like um, I have a number of uh, other instructors in other areas that we spend a lot of time with. You know, they're kind of our, they're part of our HFA association there, which is like an umbrella kind of thing that we're belonging to that shares a common rank structure. But for us, as we teach our people or we teach in these seminars and stuff, we watch each other and we can give each other honest feedback. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, when we have that honest feedback portion, it's like, Oh, this is great. Like, yeah. just give me more. You well, know, you're just dying for it. Because that, that 10 minute conversation of honest feedback yeah. could save you six months yes. worth of trial and error that you may, have, you know, eventually you may get there and figure it out on your own. Right. But you just saved yourself so much time by having people that you trust giving you that good feedback. Oh, that's so true, man. Yeah. That's so true. And that's, that's one of the, like I, th I said, the, the cultural things I'm trying to establish in HEMA is that uh, as instructor people, right, we need to be able to do this in such a way that we can have these conversations and give each other pointers without picking the ego apart, yeah. you know, because so, so many human instructors are either teaching a relatively small group of people on a normal basis, so, you know, they're not quite to that level, or the higher ones that are at that level that have a larger group and stuff are just so freaking busy yeah. that we just don't have time really to touch base as much as, as I think would be beneficial. And, and for the guys with the smaller groups, is it more of a confidence thing, you think? Yeah. I think we have, yeah. we have that too in jujitsu where we'll have smaller groups of like, hey, we don't have a school nearby, but there's four or five guys that come together and train. Right. And they actually know some some decent stuff oftentimes. Yes. But they're afraid of the bigger fish. That's right. Because they don't want to look dumb in front of their people. Exactly. 
So it's just a, it's a confidence thing, and I think yeah. that we need to as you know bigger fish, so to speak, in the pond, right. cultivate for the the smaller groups. Hey, it's okay to come in. It's even okay to make mistakes. Yeah. But there's also a lot you can contribute, and once once they truly believe that they have something to contribute, then it becomes easier for those kind of workshops and those kind of things. That's so regardless true. of style. I mean, regardless of its HEMA, if it's jujitsu or it's whatever. Right. Oh no, that's so true. Yeah. All right, man. All that's really good. Well, now we're gonna mess with you a little bit. So, <laughs> so jujitsu. Why is jujitsu so hot in law enforcement? For those that don't know, Bill is a law enforcement trainer. Um, Bill is a law enforcement officer. He's a supervisor, um, and he, uh, with his excellent background in teaching, he's able to bring that experience into the law enforcement world almost seamlessly. So, in other words, like other. You know, and how long have you been in law enforcement now? Like since two thousand nine. Yeah. So I mean, he's you know, you're starting to develop some seniority now in the mm-hmm. law enforcement world, and it's very rare to have. But you've really been started teaching pretty much right when you got on the department. Yeah, I right? really think the the jujitsu and the teaching I did is what got me in. Absolutely. You know, I, yeah. I think I think uh, the the dealing with different people, different challenges of communication that right. we see in law enforcement comes into teaching as well. Right. Some people are very easy to teach. Some people are very difficult. You have all the different personalities. And when I go to a call as an officer, I see those same kind of personalities. And through my teaching, I've learned how to talk with different people. Some of the dull people yeah. are no different than the difficult students. Yeah, definitely. Um, what I was going to say was... No, I know what it was. Um, so, you know, your development as an instructor... Um, was easy to see when you f- when you first became an officer. Bill and I come at this from a little bit different angle. Like, I've had you know twenty six years in law enforcement, and you know sixteen twenty years or so as like a martial arts teacher. Whereas you you know yours is opposite. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and so when Bill first came in as a teacher, it was clear right away what a good teacher he was. Right. So you brought that into that law enforcement context. Why is, and for people who don't know, but jiu-jitsu is, is very popular in law enforcement training currently. Like all the new schools that are like really hot are all coming from jiu-jitsu, in my opinion. Why do you think that's the case? I think a lot of it is driven by, right now, when you look at video, especially at the body camera video, right? If you see an officer go to a call and have to arrest somebody or detain somebody, right? If we have to resort to punching, kicking, hitting with a baton, using a taser, all that kind of stuff, there's a negative image that's associated with that in the public. You know, you hear bystanders say, oh, I got that on tape, I got that on tape. They're all excited because they saw an officer punch a person. We may be legally justified to punch them, legally justified to hit them with a baton or to use pepper spray or whatever it may be. But if I can show you a way to use your leverage and body control to essentially control a person physically without having to resort to a strike. Yeah. There's so much more of a benefit, one, to the image of the, you know, portrayed to the public. Two, there's a safety factor because a lot of our guys who get hurt from punching hurt their own hands. It's they're, they're trying to cl- close fist punch somebody in the back of the head. Also, now they wonder why their hands broke or whatever it may be. If there's ways to, to contain a person, trap a person physically without resorting to strikes, it's just safer for the officer and for the subject. Yeah, and jujitsu has a lot of answers for that kind of thing. It's not the catch-all be-all. It's not, I'm not trying to say jujitsu is the best by no means, um, but it has a lot of answers to a lot of the problems we see in law enforcement. I would agree with what you're saying. Um, I would add the caveat: a lot of people don't know this that are lay that that don't understand law enforcement techniques and policies. 
that uh, active countermeasures, right? And it's just a general term that's used in, pol in police training to encompass all like hand strikes, knee strikes, kicks, things like that. That is part of the repertoire of techniques that law enforcement officers are taught to go through as they negotiate someone who's, you know, fighting them or resisting arrest or whatever. Um, and anytime the public sees that, it's ultimately looked at as a loss of control, yeah. as as a as an abuse of of power. What they don't see is that oh, I see. So the guy's resisting, or there's some perception that they're resisting, or whatever the case might be. Okay, if we just all agree that this this person is resisting arrest. We just use that as a blanket statement. Law enforcement officers are taught to use active countermeasures against that person to overcome that resistance. Mm -hmm. Now, I disagree with that philosophy entirely, like from a formative standpoint even, like as a thought that those techniques will overcome resistance. They will just encourage more resistance. Yeah, well, and, it, it kind of it kind of kicks in the fight or flight mentality. Exactly right. Yeah. The the self defense preservation mode. I have never kicked anybody or punched anybody in my career. That's just said like, okay, that punch was so devastating that you know it has now overridden my my desire to to fight with you, copper. Like wow, you know, I'm just gonna quit. That that was never the case. Yeah, it might have been the case where the person realized like it was getting out of control, and they were like, okay, I give up. And so in my mind, I started saying to myself, formatively, like as a martial artist, I started saying to myself, like, okay, this stuff is not really producing the results that they are intending it to produce. What's happening is, like, the, the person who's resisting has decided, okay, like, let's not get too more crazy and I'm just going to give up at this point, yeah. right? So it's almost like the person is controlling the situation versus I'm controlling the situation. 100%. 100%. And, and I think, too, you know, you mentioned with the martial arts stuff, we talk about the active countermeasures or whatever else. If, if I'm a police officer, if I'm a police officer going to a scene and a person's actively resisting, they're, they're telling us, okay, uh, not going to go into cuffs, you're not going to go with us, whatever it may be. And I have to resort to getting into a boxer stance. We're now sparring. Yeah. That, that's, we can't be sparring. It's, it's our job to contain a person and not try to give them equal footing. We always have to try to stay one step ahead. Right. Um, so the idea of taking a martial art that is based on that sparring mentality yeah. doesn't jive with me. And like even with jujitsu, I'm not going to sit there and, and jump guard on somebody and then try to hunt for an arm bar. And like that's not the kind of stuff. I'm when I say that jujitsu works for law enforcement, I'm taking a sliver of jujitsu right. and making that work for law enforcement. Does right. that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, and uh, sometimes in some of my correspondence with people or some of my discussions with people, I come off as anti-jujitsu. And, you know, I've attended a number of your classes. I've, I've trained with you, right? And uh, I've done jujitsu. I find it a beautiful art. I find it uh, really uh, effective in terms of its methodology and formation and teaching. And I really appreciate it for everything it has. And I do think it has a lot of law enforcement applications. So... Sometimes when I speak to this, I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I, I acknowledge and see the usefulness and the utility in it. But at the same time, I'm like cautiously skeptical of some of the applications. Sure. Um, which, you know, you are too, oh, right? Yeah. As, yeah. as the expert. And, and that's, that's where part of the ego has to go aside because, you know, as a, as a black belt, you know, I, I would think that, okay, if I do this, 
it's going to work because I'm a black belt. Right. Well, the reality is even a black belt can mess up. Or right. even a black belt can get overwhelmed with an ambush or, you know, whatever kind of stressful situation. Fear can come in. Who, who knows? Right. So I can't say, well, I've been training so long that I'm just I'm going to beat everybody. That's yeah. not the case. Right. Um, Although, you know what, though? Martial arts, though, does teach you a confidence piece. It does. That, that I don't think you can get otherwise. Like, you're confident enough to know that you're going to defend yourself and be capable in that way. You know, you might get, they might get the better of you, but you have a sense of confidence that, that then allows you to not get sucked into those circumstances, I think. Sure. I agree with that. And, um, and I also think that I've been training long enough where I can very quickly in my mind take the Rolodex of stuff that's not applicable and dump it. Yeah. It works great in class. It works great when I'm training the full art of jujitsu. When it comes to real self-defense situation where I'm really on the street. Yeah. I know I've got a handful of go-to moves that I've been repping for years and years and years. I can go, and I can basically put my mind on autopilot and just get the mission accomplished. Yeah, um, and that just comes from time and you know dedication to what we do. Yeah, uh, but we have to, you know, again, know what's going to be functional in the street and separate that out from what's not, and be yeah. honest about it. Right. I'm not going to try to go for an plot. I'm not going to go for a barambolo. I'm not going to work a deep half. Right, you know, kind of guard that all. That's all stuff that's great for on the mat in tournaments, but it's not going to work for law enforcement. Right, and if you have an instructor who is already a cop or already been in law enforcement, they can quickly do that for the students. Yeah, you get a civilian jujitsu instructor who hasn't been there, done that, so to speak, on the road. They may not know what to dump out. They may not know what to stress and, and what to give the officers because they've never been in that situation themselves. Someday, you and I are going to develop the ultimate law enforcement system because in in my <laughs> in my experience perspective hema is is when we're talking about like the fencing aspect proper is all about distance management uh perception of threat and movement and understanding intention so it's like if we could marry these two ideas up in some way that sure. would that would create some lessons that make tactical sense and fit within our law enforcement criteria use of force well it's something you didn't mention. it's the future <laughs> i'm some, telling you something you didn't mention which I, I really really appreciate about you and what you do is your knowledge of angles yeah you know and i think a lot of people they sit there and want to square up with somebody and they don't realize how important angles are a yeah. subtle step here a little bit you know shift this way or this way can make all the difference in the world that's right you know for me is going in for a takedown for you and maybe to go in for a, a some kind of a strike or some kind of a cut, and um, you know, the, yeah. the angle knowledge is, is huge. Yeah, we're almost out of time. So, Bill, I'm gonna have you back at some point. Is that okay? Well, I feel bad. You're scraping the bottom of the barrel. You're 12 in, and you're going to me for, a, for an interview. <laughs> you're like top of the list, Bill. No, <laughs> you always have been, right? Because I feel like our journeys are share such similarities, but are in different worlds. Um, and, and so what's interesting to me always is whenever we talk, like I know what you're talking about. It's not the same, but it's the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and other similarities, we're pretty much the same age, yeah, right? right. So and we have you know, a lot of time, you know, you more in law enforcement than HEMA. Right. I have more in jujitsu, but less in officer. That's right. So you're right, there's this kind of weird yeah. mirroring of each other. It is, yeah. it is. Thanks a lot, man. I'm happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Okay, people, that's that's the podcast today. What a great podcast. Thanks again to Bill Krieg. And train hard, people.